Hey, welcome to the Remo Tlale Life and Faith Podcast, a long-form podcast designed to help you thrive in your life as well as in your faith. Okay, yeah, welcome to it. Uh, I am Remo Tlale, and this is the Remo Tlale Life and Faith Podcast. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, please go ahead and subscribe if you'd be so kind as to review it once you've uh, been able to listen to this episode and then share it with a friend that you think could learn something or enjoy the content. I would really appreciate that. Today, I have the honor and privilege of having a nice long sit down conversation uh, with a gentleman who is incredibly wise, who has uh, written a ton of books. Uh, we, got, we focus on his latest four, but he's written about 13 in total. And uh, he's a guy who really cares um, about the church thriving in this modern day era, uh, especially when it comes to the concepts of race, culture, diversity, politics and allegiance. Um, and he is a, he's an all round good guy. And so today I have the opportunity to chat with um, Michael Burns. So please, uh, you know, get out your notebook. If you're on a run, you know, don't speed it up to 1.5 speed. You're going to want to be able to hear what he says because he just drops uh, a lot of incredible gems and uh, it's super, super, super helpful. So here, yeah, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Michael Burns. Okay, uh, welcome everybody uh, to another episode of the podcast. Um, today I have a, a great interview lined up, uh, one I'm really looking forward to and hopefully will be as helpful to you. Uh, but today we're, we're talking to uh, Michael Burns, so please... Uh, yeah, get your get your notebook out and get ready to to take a lot of notes as we as we dive deep here with uh, with Mr. Michael Burns. How's it, Michael? I'm doing well. It's good to good to be talking to you. How how are things in South Africa? Good, I would say. I think we are. There's a lot of challenges, of course, with the, the type type of year that we've had, but but we are continuing to to edge forward. Um, so, Michael, if you don't mind just giving us kind of a brief bio before we jump into to our conversation about who you are and where you're at and what you're doing. Sure. So, uh, I live with my wife, Mycretia, and our we have, we have two sons. We live here in the what's called the Twin Cities, uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul and Minnesota, which if you're not familiar with the geography of the United States, Minnesota is kind of centrally located as far as east to west. And then uh, it's one of the northernmost states in the United States up by Canada. Um, and so uh, we're part of the Two Cities Church here is what we're called. And uh, we, you know, we live here. We have our youngest son, Elijah, who's 17, lives with us. Our oldest son, uh, Paviel, is 25. He has he lives on his own here in the Twin Cities. And then we have um, two other young men, one that's 17 and one that's 19 that lives with us. And so we have a house full of boys, nice. uh, which is always fun and interesting. But I am a teacher in the Two Cities Church, uh, a biblical teacher. And then my wife, is uh, she volunteers full-time on the staff. Uh, of the church here, but she works as a critical care nurse. Uh, and so she spent most of this year working with, uh, you know, COVID patients and the ICU and that kind of thing. So it's been a hectic, busy year for her as well. But um, so, uh, you know, as far as the biblical teaching, then I, 
uh, kind of split my time. I'm, I'm primarily here locally and I work with the church here as a minister and we help to shepherd the youth and family ministry and uh, organize the education and teaching ministry in the church. And then uh, I travel around quite a bit, or at least I used to travel back when we did that a lot. Now it's a lot of Zoom meetings. Um, teaching churches uh, on all manner of biblical teaching. Uh, but the last few years are really a special emphasis on our ministry on uh, race and culture and even politics and how those all relate to the kingdom of God. Uh, most often, although that's starting to change a little bit, but most often, uh, either myself or my wife, when she's available, uh, has come with me and we've given, uh, before this year, we probably gave about 100 workshops on race and culture called Crossing the Line, uh, both here and in Africa and other places around the world. And uh, this year, we've uh, I've done probably over 100 lessons and workshops and things online for churches. Um uh, a lot still on race and culture, but increasingly this year in the United States, a lot on politics and the mm -hmm. role um, that, that the kingdom should play there as we have a pretty contentious uh, presidential election uh, going on as we speak. And so, um, and then the, the, the other big element of my ministry is uh, I think our connection with Africa. We made, um, a number of trips. I've kind of lost count, but it's somewhere over two dozen, you know, in the last um, 13 or 15 years or whatever um, to go over to various countries on the African continent, teach, encourage, to learn from the churches there, um, I help uh, at varying degrees, either teach or in some uh, locations help direct um, the ministry training academies we have in Johannesburg, Lagos, uh, Nairobi, and Abidjan. Mm -hmm. And so I work uh, with those as well. And, um, you know, but I have a special connection, I think, with the churches in Southern Africa and have been able to visit almost all of our churches that are uh, in um, our fellowship of churches that are in Southern Africa. Wow. And, uh, um, yeah, uh, that's about all I could think of right now. Um, yeah, I guess I've, I've written a few books, um, uh, 13 in total, but the, the last four probably become the, the most popular, which is crossing the line, culture, race, and kingdom. And then, a, uh, two books on cultural humility Mm -hmm. A crown that will last and all things to all people and uh, escaping the beast, politics, allegiance, and kingdom. Yeah. All right. No, awesome. Thank you so much. I mean, that's a, it's a great, a great bio for those who don't know you. And I think we will try to cover as much, uh, especially of the latest four books. I think they have been uh, the topic of many conversation, as you say, you've done, I mean, to, to hear a hundred workshops before this in person, and then now a hundred in one year or plus uh, lessons and stuff. It just shows you know, the relevance of your books and, and what, what the, the work that you're doing. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm definitely grateful to have met you and, and been able to, to listen to your podcast, which I'm, again, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, but if you don't mind us starting at the beginning, so, you know, now you're in, in Minnesota, 
Um, where were you? Where were you kind of born? Uh, what was your kind of early childhood like? Uh, and maybe particularly around the idea of being a Christian and Christianity. How were you kind of raised in the early days? Yeah, so I, I was born um, and raised in a, a kind of a small city uh, for U.S. standards, about 50,000 people, kind of a small, sleepy town, um, not, not a terribly diverse area. Um, and it was, it was comfortable. It was, it was safe. It was, you know, kind of an idyllic sort of childhood in a sense. And great parents still do there's they still live in that same city same house that i grew up in you know all of that um and they were you know my my parents are are uh, incredibly um faithful people they're believers in jesus they raised us up in a in a church um but in a lot of ways my my experience was um you know it was kind of a typical evangelical uh, church in America. Um, and, and it was, a, it was a good experience in a lot of ways, but I never really had my own faith. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as, as a child, it was kind of, you know, okay, that's what the older folks are doing, but I, I'm not too interested in it. And then as I got older and I became a teenager, um, you know, my, a lot of what I saw was, at least from my perspective at the time, was hypocrisy. I saw, and not in my parents, but I think in a lot of people in the church, I just saw, um, you know, uh, what was masquerading as a religion, but was almost more political and bent. It was more to protect our cultural comfort levels and our political beliefs and to denounce other people. And then, you know, uh, people would gossip and get in these terrible fights and the church would split over ridiculous things, you know, that had nothing to do with the core of Christianity. And, and so by the time um, I left high school and went into college, mm-hmm. I was kind of at that point, functionally an atheist. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ever fully, by in my mind that there wasn't a God, but maybe a a deist is more of the idea of what I was at that point. Like, I didn't really care if there's a God, I was going to live life my own way and do my own thing. And so that's, that's kind of how I hit college and, you know, want to make up for lost time and um, have fun and, and, and do all that sort of thing. And then in, in college, I um, met my wife, although ironically she wasn't in the college where I was going, cause I went to college about a thousand miles away from home. Okay. Um, I actually met her in my hometown uh, when I was on a break from college for a weekend. I went back and, and met her. She didn't grow up in my hometown, but she had moved there. Um, and, and actually just for like a couple of months. And then I met her on a break and then she had moved back to her hometown, but we, uh, began dating and stayed together. And eventually, uh, shortly after I graduated, we got married. And uh, we moved to Milwaukee, which is a big city in the state where we grew up in. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where we actually first uh, were um, invited out to a church by, you know, a, a number of disciples. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much you want me to go into that, but that's, mm-hmm. Um, 
that's really where we were converted as a young married couple then. Okay. Well, we, yeah, we'll definitely dive into it. But you said something that I want to just uh, quickly get a definition of. When you say you grew up in a typical evangelical church for America, what does that mean? Yeah, so, and this is especially true in the 1970s and 80s, right, is, um, and so now I got to go back a little bit and get a little more theological than you probably really wanted to with that question, but, and and even historical, but I think when the, when the United States is founded, Mm -hmm. it, um, it, there's a, before the country's even founded, when it, when it's being settled by the Puritans and some of that, the mindset was that they were creating a, a new Israel, that they were new Israelites. You know, this was a new promised land, even though there's no scriptures that point to any sort of such a concept, mm-hmm. that became the mindset. And so um, that, that has a couple ramifications. One is that you start to see yourselves as the people of God, mm-hmm. as the kingdom of God. That's one. Another ramification, which is actually really damaging, is you begin to see other people, especially indigenous people, as Canaanites. Mm. You know, and, and so you start to apply Old Testament scriptures to yourself. Hey, we can move them off the land. We can treat them however. But that sort of led to this mindset in America that made it very difficult from the very beginning to, to separate the kingdom of God and the United States of America. And so there's so inseparable in mind that it's kind of like, well, when we do anything, we're the good guys in history and God's on our side because we're a Christian nation. Mm -hmm. And so particularly, and I won't go into all the details, but if we scream through history and fast forward into the 1970s and eighties, when I grew up by that time, the you're, evangelical churches were very much about you know god and country and it's hard to distinguish the two and and so it it had become very uh political sort of in nature and and very much in the vein of the the role of church was to implement the morality of god's word into society and if that meant through laws through you know legislation whatever um that was how it was going to go and so um even that that evangelical upbringing was sort of very politically active and aware um and very um judgmental then of any behavior that was deemed immoral or was not you know by god's standard there there was a lot of we kind of looked down on that you know you gave lip service you want people to become christians but the really the way we found our identity was through denouncing you know any anyone who was you know quote unquote a a sinner Mm -hmm. and so you know it was in one sense this might sound confusing a little bit it was really idyllic and it was wonderful and there was very nice people and and my parents were amazing and they've Mm -hmm. you know they've sort of shed a a lot of that over the years and got rid of that sort of evangelical um, connection still remain, you know, believers in Jesus and all that, but that particular bent of, 
God and kingdom uh, and, and the United States are intertwined and, um, you know, the innocence of America, we're always right. We always are the good guys. Sure. And we look down on sort of everyone else. And so um, that that's kind of what I mean by that typical sort of evangelical experience that I think is now, you know, really being exposed for being very problematic mm-hmm. and, and not, uh, not really the full picture of what God's kingdom is supposed to be. Yeah. Okay, and and do you feel like that played a role? Like you're saying, you know, there's, there's this really high standard, there's this intense level of judgment, right, towards people who we con- who are deemed as sinners. So do you think that played a role in the hypocrisy that you saw? That man, you know, these guys are preaching this high level of, you know, God and kingdom um, and country, but you know, the, the live the disparity between that and their lives is 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 large. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you know, and again, not everybody. There's, you know, there's some really sincere people. And, um, you know, and I, and I appreciated that. And, and, you know, some of those people made an impact in my life. But there was a lot of, um, you know, that. It was like, you know, it was, man, there was a constant drumbeat against homosexuality and against mm-hmm. the Hollywood immoral and, you know, um, you know, just everybody else was sinners. And then, you know, you turn around and you'd see a minister run off and leave his wife and get married to another woman that he was marriage counseling or something. And then mm-hmm. uh, they'd get a divorce and now he'd have a new wife and, you know, it's like, wait, how is that okay? And, you know, and so you'd yeah. see some of the same sorts of things, even though the rhetoric was different, when you pulled back the rug, the, the lives of a lot of people who were saying they were Christians was uh, no different than the world in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was different sins maybe, but it, it was still sins. And so it started to feel like, I feel like you're uh, the term we would use is cherry picking. You're just cherry picking some sins, yeah. right? That that you don't like, um, but then you're given, you know, a pass to your own immorality or greed or you know materialism or uh, judgmentalism or or lust or whatever it is. And so um, there was there was infighting and arguing and all that. And it's like I, I really didn't see. Um, again, some amazing individuals and my, and my parents were great examples. They were very sincere, uh, in following Jesus, but I just saw too many people that it was like, man, the church as a whole, this is kind of a joke. And, um, again, somebody else may have had a different experience, but that was mine. And I didn't, I just didn't want, um, at a certain point much to do with that. Mm, yeah. And so, so how, how do you, you know, how would you guide young people? Uh, Cause primarily the audience that listens to this is under 35 uh, and, and they yeah. can be the sense because we're now almost global, right? Everything is kind of not seen no, any longer from just your local context uh, with connectivity. Right. Uh, how would you guide young people who say, but, but Michael, the same stuff is still happening. There's still Christians claiming one thing and living uh, something totally different. Um, you know, what, what would you say to that? How do you, how do you help them to compute 
that hypocrisy for themselves so that they can, you know, attain a faith of their own? Yeah. Well, no, that's a really good question. And I, I, I think one is I would make a distinction, you know, there's, there's a, a difference in, okay, these folks are, are really going after following Jesus, but they're just falling short as humans will, will do. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's times where you look and say, man, there, there's just a, a real deep structural, like they're not even living out what the kingdom is supposed to be. They're going in a whole nother direction. It should be rather obvious when the scriptures say mercy over judgment. And all I ever hear is judgment of those mm-hmm. outside of the church. Um, that, that's, that's not scripture. When I, you know, when I see the scriptures say the kingdom is good news for the poor and oppressed, and all I ever see is comfortable middle class, upper class folks um, running a social club, you know, and talking about Jesus in their social club, uh, that's a flaw and a problem. Sure. That's separate, I think, from people who are genuinely trying to live out the values of the kingdom and going after them and then falling short. So I I do want to distinguish that. But I think in either context, the key to me is, is Jesus calls followers and gives them a very important role and says, hey, what you do is important because you will represent me. Mm. And yet I have to distinguish Jesus from those who would follow him. Um, And what people do in the name of Jesus is not who Jesus is. Those are two separate things. And in, in fact, in Matthew 7, uh, Jesus makes really clear. Uh, he says, you know, there's going to be more people on the road that are following me, saying they're following me, but not really doing what I'm asking them to do, not really living out my will. Mm-hmm. Then there are people who are genuinely even trying to do that. Sure. Um, so there's there what well, if Jesus was right, then we're going to see more people claiming Christianity and not really living it out than those who are are truly doing it. And the only other thing I would say to that is, you know, there are a number of scriptures that, in the context of the church, talk about um, you know things like be patient with one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. Yeah. Um, you know, those sorts of things. And it, it's real easy to take on an attitude of, you know, well, I shouldn't be hurt in the church. I shouldn't be let down in the church. I shouldn't, you know, everybody should be perfect in the church, but that's not what the church is. The church is uh, a, a collection of imperfect people um, that are trying to follow Jesus, trying to live out, but we will fail. We will blow. That's why there are scriptures that say, you know, if you're going to do this, you're going to need to forgive and expect to be hurt, and expect to be sinned against, and expect to bear with one another. And so, you know, uh, I think those are important things. But I I do think, again, there is um, a distinction, as subtle as it may be, between a, a genuine model of the kingdom that Jesus calls us to, and then people just following falling short of being like Jesus in that model versus a model that is flawed from the beginning and is not what Christianity is supposed to be, even if it's the most kind and and wonderful, sincere people, Mm. um, they're not going to embody what the kingdom is because the model is flawed. And I think that's what I experienced growing up in was that flawed model. 
And, and now I'm trying to be part of a, a model where, um, you know, maybe we have as good a picture as we can, but we're still falling, falling short as a community, as individuals of being like Jesus. Sure. Okay. Amen. That's, that's super helpful. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of veering back onto the story here. You, you said you kind of, you went to college uh, and, and uh, you know, I know that, you know, you didn't necessarily stop going to church. I, I remember hearing uh, in your podcast about a church that you, you were attending because, you know, there was, uh, there was kind of a meal there for you as a college student and there was a lot that was learned there. <laughs> you know, for you, the, the conversion uh, that, that really got you back on track to following Jesus or onto the track of following Jesus kind of happened when you moved to, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Can you, can you tell us about how that, how that went down for you and your wife? Yeah, so, you know, I, I graduated college. We'd got, gotten married and decided to move to Milwaukee for various reasons. Uh, it was about an hour and a half from where we lived and where I'd grown up. And um, so we, we moved there. And the first month, that we were living there and, and Milwaukee's a town of, um, if you just count the, the, the city itself, um, I'm not even sure. I think it's about 600,000 people. And if you include all the suburbs and stuff and that, then it gets over a million, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, in the first month we were there, uh, sometimes together, sometimes apart, but in, in different places around the city, we got invited out to church five or six different times. Wow. And, you know, didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it, really, just other than, man, you know, like, this is weird. Never been invited out to a church like that, but certainly by a stranger sure. in, in my life, because the town I grew up in, you know, you either went to church or you didn't. And if you went to church, you probably went to the church your parents went to it, maybe even your grandparents. And, you know, that was just kind of there wasn't any sense you know, there was some evangelism, but not, you know, real heavy. And so I'd never been invited to church. Mm -hmm. And so we thought that was odd. And then, um, you know, and, and something about that time, again, we weren't going to church at all. We weren't very spiritual at all. But, you know, started to realize, like, man, maybe we need to, you know, find a church. We had a young son, and, you know, maybe it's time to do that and but couldn't really agree on you know what kind of church that would be and weren't super um urgent about it mm -hmm. and so then we were in a grocery store one day and this guy walked up to me and he kind of tapped me on the shoulder and it was like you know hey uh you know excuse me do you have a minute and i was kind of irritated by that i didn't know why he was talking to me i was kind of like turned around i was like what do you want Sure. And, and, and not a very nice tone, you know, or look on my face. And But he powered through. Now, what I didn't know at the time was that he had been praying that morning. He's like, man, I just feel dull in my faith. I got to go share my faith today. God, help me to be bold enough to share with the most intimidating person I come across today. And so he saw me in, in a grocery store. He was actually on the other side of town from where he lived. He just stopped in there to grab something. And saw me and thought, that's that's the guy. <laughs> and so then he walked up and my first response is like, What do you want? You sure. Know? Yeah. And 
and but he he just said, hey, I want to invite you to his church, and he gave us an invitation card. And so I took it home, and I, I went over to the garbage can, and I opened it up, and I started to throw it away. And then something just stopped me. I was like, ah, whatever, and I threw it on the counter uh, instead of throwing it away. And about a week later, my wife came and was like, hey, I want to – we should go to church. I want to go to church. And so – it's like, well, let's, I don't know, let's find some of those invitation cards or churches we got invited to. So we started looking and looked in a couple drawers and grabbed the one on the counter and was like, you know what? These are all the same church. It's the Milwaukee Church of Christ. Like, I didn't know that. And so we realized that we'd been invited to the same church a number of times. Um, and so we, you know, we went out and that's kind of a story we were, the, the first thing we walked in, we were blown away is the, the racial diversity. We'd never seen that in a church in the, in the United States. And it's like, wow, that's different. And, and my wife being African-American, um, that, you know, that appealed to us. Yeah. But it was really the people. It was like, wow, this is sort of a different thing and than I'd ever experienced. Like the the amount of fellowship and time people were together and the genuineness of their relationships and how giving they were like it, it almost it, it made me think like something's got to be up here this this can't you can't be like that um you know real about relationships and and committed and then we dug in a little bit and found out that you know wasn't perfect people but it was genuine they were they were truly trying to be followers of Jesus. And they sat down and, you know, walked through the scriptures with us and showed us why they lived that way and why they followed Jesus and mm -hmm. why they wanted to be like Jesus and how they were going about it. And so we were like, man, it took us, you know, a while, but eventually we were like, yeah, you know, sign us up. I, I want to do that too. I was just blown away by, by Jesus and a community of people that were serious uh, about following him. Mm -hmm. And so in uh, January of 1999, we decided to follow Jesus and make him uh, Lord and give up all our other allegiances and have been trying to do that ever since. Wow, that's awesome. That's a, that's a super cool story just to think that it happened that many times with the same church, you know. It, it could have easily been, been right. multiple different churches, but uh, it's cool to see kind of how God was really uh, working there. Um, but what, I know you said, you know, you kind of saw these people and you were like, whoa, these guys are different. They, they're living this way. It's, it's not what I'm used to, et cetera. Um, but then there's the side where you said, you know, they walked you through the Bible. Now, what, what role would you say people play in, in helping people make decisions towards faith in Jesus? Like, you know, and I, know, I know it's not quantitative. Like you can't say, well, they play six or seven percent, you know. But, but what role would you say that plays? Because I think it, it goes back to this idea of that hypocrisy that you saw uh, and that some young people can feel like they see within the church. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's in Colossians 1, if my memory is serving. And Paul says, you know, in essence, to paraphrase, he says, you know, I... I I complete in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Mm. And in other words, he's not saying that the cross is insufficient. He's saying, in other words, you know, I hadn't, 
I'm never going to experience personally Jesus laying his life down for me in a physical, tangible sense. I'm not going to experience that. Yeah. But what I can experience is other people laying their life down on his behalf, Hmm. trying to be like him, represent him. And that is what I experienced. And I saw, you know, whether it was a little ways, like a guy who was willing to go talk to somebody that intimidated him, whether it was, you know, the, the way people just loved us sacrificially, you know, call them up and, and be like, man, you know, Hey, whatever you need. And I remember, um, as a young guy, and I think I was studying the Bible. I'm not even sure if I was baptized yet, but I was, I was a high school teacher and, uh, the science teacher, I I taught history. The science teacher came and said, Hey, I know you're kind of in the church now and stuff like that. Um, I'm teaching like origins and I'm teaching, evolution stuff but I wondered if you knew somebody who could kind of teach the other side because I want students to hear both sides and maybe an intelligent design a a creator sort of um, model of uh, origins and so I reached out in the bible talk we were in I think we'd just been baptized Um, and the the bible talk that we were in um, there happened to be a professor of science in the group. And so he barely knew me. We were brand new. And I said, Hey, you know, would you be interested in doing this? So he, he actually, his college was like over an hour away, hour and a half or something. He drove down in the middle of his day in between classes to teach a bunch of inner city high school kids who were not respectful and very kind to, you know, the science professor. Um, and, you know, taught them and then drove back an hour and a half to get back to his next class. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just little sacrificial ways like that. And, and I asked him, I was like, you know, why did you do that? And he was like, it it was for you. It wasn't for the kids, you know, it was like, because you asked and that's what you needed. And it was such a, a small, but really significant little sacrificial thing. An example of people laying down their lives and, and by the way, I, you may or may not know that science professor. Um, he, he's actually written a number of books since then and, and become um, fairly well known, at least in our family of churches. Um, his name is John Oakes. That's and um, yeah, so, you know, and so, uh, and he's continued to be a, a great friend and encouragement and, and mentor in a lot of ways. And and so I think that's the role that, that we play is, you know, Jesus, the cross was not a one-time event in the sense of Jesus' whole life was about laying his life down, about carrying his cross for the benefit of others. And he, he said, he was very clear, if you want to follow me, yeah. it starts with you picking up your cross. You're going to lay your life down for the benefit of others. Yeah. And, and that's the role that we're going to play as we sacrifice our lives. Um, for the benefit of others, because someone did that for us and someone did that for them. And ultimately it goes back to Jesus. Sure. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's an awesome picture. Uh, just to think about the idea that we, we continue that the example of the cross for people around us. Uh, and I know for me, you know, faith was, you know, was growing, but I think seeing people and the relationships I had with people, even though I was, like two or three people was my relationships uh, at the time as a young man, you know, making this decision uh, to follow Jesus. I think 
like you say, that laying down of life, I mean, I always tell the story about how the gentleman who helped me become a Christian, he would pick me up from my house, take me to the gym, uh, eat Nando's with me, which is like a fast food chicken place. I'm sure you've Oh, had. I know Nando's, man. I love Nando's. And do you know we have, there's a few Nando's in the United States now, dude. I've heard it's, it's starting to gain some traction. So that is... Uh, it's that, not, that it's not quite the same. It's not as good as the ones in South Africa, but there's a couple in Chicago. So whenever I get there, man, I'm all over it. Come on. Yeah. So, I mean, he, but he'd do this religiously for six months, you know, just because he wanted to help me to get to know Jesus. So I think you're right in that it, it, it is that picture of someone laying down their life. Um, but you've kind of, you know, helped us to, to veer kind of through your life here. Um, and so, you know, next, next kind of big step for you, and I could be totally off, but, but from my perspective was this idea of becoming a biblical scholar and becoming a teacher uh, that as, you, as you are now. Um, and so I just wanted to ask kind of how did that begin? How, what, what kind of in, incited you to being, you know, man, I want to study the Bible deeper. I want to you know, develop that, that skill. Um, and maybe it was because you had a background in being a history teacher. I don't know. Um, but, but what, what was kind of the, the catalyst for that for you? Yeah, well, I was, I was a history teacher and, um, you know, had no vision as, as a young Christian of being in the ministry, being on staff, being a biblical teacher, that, that really was not on my radar screen. I envisioned myself being a history teacher for the rest of time. And I wanted to, you know, make history documentaries and that kind of thing. And um, that was, that was my big goal. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, I'm a young Christian. And so I'm, uh, you know, I'm working towards that. But I, you know, I've always been to the sense of I get bored really fast if I'm not learning new things. I, I, I like to learn. I like to explain what I'm learning to other people. And so at, at the time, the church we were in, it was a wonderful church, amazing people. But there was a bit of a philosophy on Sunday morning that Sunday morning was really about visitors. And so the sermons were always aimed at visitors. And what you started to feel like is in essence, there was like six or eight different sermons and they were just rotated with different words and slightly different verses. But, yeah. you know, I, I would sit in there and I'd be like, man, if they turn to Acts 238 for another sermon, I'm going to lose my mind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I get why there was an effectiveness to it. But for me, I was I was just dying. I was so bored. And so I responded in maybe not the healthiest of ways, which is I would start to get articles or spiritual books or even commentaries, whatever. And I would slip them inside my Bible. And then during sermons, I would sit there and do my own studies on oh stuff goodness. and read my own stuff because I just, you know, this is before we had, you know, cell phones, right? Now you just, pull up your cell phone and act like you're on your Bible app and read something else. But, um, you know, so I, at least in fairness, I was at least studying out, you know, scriptural things, mm -hmm. but I, I just, I was like, I can't listen to any more of these sermons and, and they weren't bad. A lot of it's just where I was at and kind of prideful and, sure. but I wanted to learn. And so um, I, I went after that. And I think at a, a certain point, um, you know, I was not a great disciple the first couple of years. I was just not fully wrestled with 
what it meant to lay my life down and my preferences and comfort zones. Mm-hmm. But uh, someone asked my wife and I to lead the preteen ministry or be involved with it first and then lead it. And so we agreed. Um, well, first I tried to get out of it and then I agreed to it. Um, and so I thought, okay, you know what, if we're going to, if we're going to teach these, you know, fifth and sixth and seventh grade, you know, kind of 10, 11, 12 year olds, mm-hmm. then I'm going to teach them the Bible. I'm going to teach it to them deeply. I'm not going to do some of these little kitty lessons that you find in curriculum. So the first thing we did is we got rid of the curriculum and we started teaching them through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We went through and expected them to learn it in real detail. And we'd quiz them on it at the end of a book and, you know, do all this stuff. And we had huge fun. And it, it really, I think, had an impact on the kids. And they went after learning the Bible in, in incredible ways. And in fact, you know, a lot of those folks are, you're in your mid to late 20s. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of them are, are your age, you know, like mid twenties around 30 and they still come back and go, man, the stuff we learned, the foundation that we learned biblically is, is still impacts me today and carries me through today. And that's the word of God. That wasn't anything we were doing, but, um, and and so I, I think at that time I, you know, said, well, still being frustrated by the lessons. And when I was in church, again, I'm doing my own studies. So it hit me at a certain point. I was praying one day and I feel like God really put on my heart, you know, you can be part of the problem or part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when people see an area of weakness in the church or something the church could do better, whether it's depth of teaching or loving one another or serving the poor, whatever it is. Yeah. um, We're left with the choice of, I can either get frustrated by it and get critical about it and, you know, all of that and go down that road. Or I can look and say, you know, God, let me see this area of need because he's given me a job. Mm -hmm. He's calling me to figure out how I can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And, you know, I've told people a lot over the years when you engage in that, then sometimes people go, okay, well, I'll, I'll get fired up and I'll try to make a difference here. And if it doesn't happen in the first few weeks or months, then people give up and go, well, I tried. Yeah. And rather, I think that's a, what it should be is an indication that, Oh, God's not only given you a job, it's a long-term position. Mm. <laughs> it's going to take a while for you that, but God let you see that because that's your role. Go after it. Sure. And so I went to the church leadership, super humbly, no expectation and just said, you know, if you guys would ever like to have some lessons, maybe that are a little different or a little more of a teaching bent, um, this kind of stuff I'm studying out, I'd love to, you know, help out where I can. And so uh, eventually they asked me to do a lesson and I did, and they came back and said, you know, it's pretty good. We'll probably have you do some more stuff. And so I kept doing that, kept teaching in the preteens. And um, eventually it was actually my wife who came to me and said, I think you should go in the ministry and, and, you know, all of that. And I was like, I think you should have your head examined because I don't <laughs> have no intent of going in the ministry. And, um, you know, but I figured, okay, I'll ask some people, I'll get input and then they'll tell me it's crazy, but they didn't. Okay. <laughs> and 
So this was like the end of 2003, beginning of 2004, which if you know the history of our fellowship is kind of a rocky time for ministry. A lot of people are getting out of the ministry. Sure. And like, I, I'm like, I feel like God's starting to call me into the ministry. How insane is that? Yeah. And I yeah. sat down with our evangelist at the time and I said, you know, my wife thinks I should go in the ministry. I've been asking a bunch of people. They think I should. Uh, I, you know, I've been praying about it. I feel like maybe God's telling me to, but it makes no sense. And he said, you know, I would love to offer you a job on staff here, but you know, we've actually got to constrict our budget right now, not hire new people. And I was like, Oh, great. Then, you know, problem solved. I don't have to go in the ministry. And he looked at me and it was such a profound moment in my life. And he said, no, 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 I didn't say that. And I was like, well, but you just said there was no job. And he said, I find it interesting that you say you want to follow Jesus, but are unwilling to step out in faith at all. Sure. And just because there's not a ministry job doesn't mean you're not called into the ministry. And so I was like, wow, okay. So I went back and wrestled with it. And I said, you know what? But if I do this, I, I want to do it my way. And at that time, it wasn't. there wasn't really too many people in our movement. There was a few but not too many that were really going to seminary or doing training and, and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do that though, I, I want to, that's what I'm, I'm, you know, I want to have that training and that kind of thing. So um, I talked with my wife and we decided, and I started up school uh, college again, you know, seminary, I think mm -hmm. in October and then had put in my notice as a, as a high school teacher and said, I'm going to be done in February. And for a couple of years, I'll do school and we'll, we'll get by on my wife's salary and I'll just volunteer and help the church where I can. And we'll see what God does. And I think maybe three days or something before my last day at the high school, I was at the high school um, and they called me up and said, Hey, you got a phone call in the office. Again, this was before cell phones. Um, some people had cell phones. This is 2004, but no, I didn't. Sure. And so I uh, I went into the office and it was a really good friend of mine who was on the ministry staff at the time in the church. And he said, Hey dude, do you want to, um, do you want to be on staff? And I was like, what? And he goes, you want to lead the campus ministry? I was like, man, I don't know nothing about campus ministry. Yeah. I was converted as a married. I didn't, I didn't have much to do with it. And he said, well, our, our campus minister is um, being sent to Iraq for a year. He was in the National Guard at the time. Okay. He said, we need a campus minister. You want to do it? And I was like, um, okay. So I thought I didn't have a position in the ministry. And then three days before my last day, I was asked to go wow. in the ministry. And so, um, you know, been doing that ever since. But um you know, as a teacher and just trying to, you know, take those streams of being called to follow Jesus, but also, um, you know, doing it in the way that I was designed to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I'm not the smartest of guys. I'm not the most scholarly of guys, but I think, um, you know, what I can do is I, I understand that world. I like to read. I understand that world. And so I, I do have this passion that really developed in me in teaching in the inner city, which is taking difficult topics and maybe explaining them to, to you know, just regular folks in a way that they can understand. 
so that some of that stuff is not inaccessible to them. Um, Because I think one of the biggest shames of a a Bible teacher is if they sit there for an hour and teach and then everybody walks away and goes like, wow, that's one of the smartest people I've ever heard, but I don't really understand a word of what they were saying. Um, What's the point of that? So um, what I try to do is just teach, you know, just be a street teacher and teach in the way that people that makes sense and understand and, and can actually use it. Yeah. Which I'll say, uh, at least for me, I thoroughly enjoy your teaching because of that. I really find it that it is, uh, I love that you said street level because that's, that's me. I'm just <laughs> trying to get by. So I'll, I'll just say thank you very much for allowing God to, to use you. Over the years, I know I've read, I've read a good chunk of your work. I, I've done, uh, I think, four volumes of the workbooks. You know, I've, I've now been engaging with the All Things Soul Men content uh, as well. So um, yeah, I'm very, I am very grateful uh, personally. But uh, before we kind of talk about the, the, the four books that have kind of been the predominant, you know, leg of your work over the last couple of years, uh, is there any, any practical tips that you have for, you know, us street level people that you're like, man, to just take your faith just a, a tad bit deeper, your Bible study just a little bit deeper, uh, do this or do these two things. What did you say are kind of, you know, bare bone basics uh, that, that we could implement to kind of take us that slight bit deeper? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, that's going to be different for each person, right? Because each person is in a different place. But, you know, I, I would say in general, one of the things is I think sometimes people approach the Bible um, with too much reverence. <laughs> and, and I don't mean to approach it that we should approach it irreverently. But what I mean is we tend to read it like it's this, oh, it's a holy book and the people in there and the stories and everything is, you know, written in a sense of, you know, how I should now live devotional. Like, man, you know, how does this challenge me? And there's there's a good element to that in a time and place. But I think that loses some of the motivation for continuing to study the Bible, which is, you know, these are real people and in real situations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you read, you, you can read like the story of Daniel and like, oh, yeah, he spent a night in the lion's den and God shut his mouth. And we just read that like this, this great tale of theology or something. Mm-hmm. And don't stop and think like, man, let, let me really imagine what that would have been like. A regular dude being thrown in a lion's den. The horror of that, because I know what I would feel like if I got thrown in a den of lions. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm being honest. I might wet myself, you know, for a minute. Like, I'm, I'm going to be afraid. I'm going to be freaked out. That's, even if they didn't eat me right away, that's a, that's a long night of anxiety mm-hmm. um, and praying hard like I've never prayed before but probably not a lot of depth to the prayer, you know, more just like, you know, God, please don't let them eat me. Please don't let them eat me um, sort of thing. And so when you read the stories, the stories about Jesus and things like that, entering into those stories and really being curious, like, you know, why were the people doing that? Why is this happening? Um, What, what might they have been thinking? You know, and I think there's a point where you want to be careful and understand that some of this is imagination and speculation. 
Yeah. And so you can't be dogmatic about any of that or make it, you know, doctrine or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that can really bring biblical reading to life and understanding that, uh, you know, part of that too then is that these are different people, different culture. They're doing things in, in a different way. And let me, you know, maybe try to take some steps and learn somehow not to read my culture and make assumptions into their culture and, and, and to understand uh, some of those dynamics. And so, you know, I think just stepping back, you know, you read the letter of Paul's, maybe of Paul, those aren't as, as narrative in a sense, but starting to dig in, you know, why was Paul writing this letter to the Romans? What's going on in the church? And when you dig through his letter and you find little clues and you start to read and you realize that, okay, in 49 AD, uh, the emperor of Rome kicks all of uh, Jews, Christian Jews as well, out of Rome mm -hmm. and leave, leaves the church in Rome to be just a Gentile church. And so they're doing it Gentile culture, Gentile way, Gentile perspective. Yeah. And then in 54 AD, five years later, Nero rescinds Claudius's edict to kick Jews out. And all of a sudden they come rushing back into the church. And, and you can imagine, you know, uh, I mean, imagine a, a church in South Africa that's all black for five years. And then all of a sudden half of the church is white overnight. Mm. And, you know, and I mean, you can all be great christians and love one another and fellowship and all that but that's going to have some cultural challenges isn't it oh, yeah. so folks are going to be like can we talk about the music here can we talk <laughs> about the language that's used can we talk about some of the assumptions and preaching styles and and perspectives and some of the things that are preached from the pulpit about justice and politics and we've got, we're going to have to talk about through some of that stuff and you're going to have conflict the more diverse you are so that's all going on in the church. And then Paul sits down and he's now going to write a church that he's not personally visited or planted, but he's kind of become the expert in the first century on Gentiles and on dealing with these cultural issues. And so he's going to sit down and, and write this church. And when you kind of understand that, it brings a fascinating backdrop to what he's saying and how he's challenging them and you know that kind of thing or you do it in the letter to philemon and you start to understand what's really going on and it brings a, a depth um, but it helps us i think read the bible well which is first what was going on when this is written and what is the writer trying to communicate to the original audience now i can ask the questions of what does this mean for me sure. but it's got to be in light of what it meant for them first not just i mean just take this passage out of context and apply it to my life right now with no consideration of what's going on yeah. so that's one and then uh, you know i think the other thing is if if somebody wants to go deeper if they want to you know i want to be a bible teacher or something like that mm -hmm. and i'll be honest i've had over the years countless numbers almost every time i give a lesson somebody will come up and be like man i love that i want to be a teacher i, I want to know the Bible, like in the way that you're describing and the way you're teaching, I want to be able to do that. How do I do that? And, you know, in that sense, uh, I'm not great. I'm not special or anything like that, but it's, you know, it's kind of like an athlete, you know, there's a lot of athletes who look and it's like, well, how do you, 
how do you get to be like that? And it's like, well, they put in the work, right? It's hours and hours of dedication for years and years and years. And so I usually tell people, you know, well, I read between, I try to keep up and read three to five books a week. Um, I try to, you know, not everybody does that or needs to, but that's what I do. I put, I put in the work. Sometimes I read a whole book and get one line from a sermon out of it, you know, one thought. Um, and, and so, or, you know, reading scripture for hours and hours and studying it. And, and most of the time, Remo, to be honest, people will then go, Oh, never mind. Um, okay well th- thanks yeah because you know they they don't want to put in the work sure. and so you know I, i'm pretty sure jesus said somewhere uh i'm kidding it's mark four jesus said you know with the measure you use it, it will be measured back what what you put into things is what you're going to get out and mm-hmm. so um you know, that's, that's the thing too, is, is find an exciting way to read the Bible, I think, and read it rightly, but then you, you got to put in the work. You got to, you got to study, you got to read the Bible, you got to read books, you know, that help illuminate um, the Bible and, and that sort of thing. So that, that would be my advice is to, you know, if you want to go down that road, you got to, you got nothing comes for free. Yeah. No, awesome. That is, I've, uh, I've taken some notes there. That is super helpful. Uh, even just how you broke down the picture of Romans. Uh, just again, yeah, super, super, super helpful. Um, but it, it, it begins, I think, with that Romans picture. You, you've begun to kind of touch on what these four uh, latest books have been about. And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the first one was crossing the line. And then it was into a crown that were lost, uh, which is a 75 day uh, devotional series that you can. 49, seven 49, weeks, yeah. 49, 49, sorry, I got the days wrong. There. 49 devotionals. Uh, and then it's um, the latest one, All Things to All People. Well, not latest, but then it's All Things to All People. And then it goes into uh, the one that I have not got my hands on, which is politics. Uh, I can't remember the exact, something about the beast, the mark of the beast. If yeah, I'm it, it, escaping the beast. And I've, I've heard every... Uh, every variation on the beast, people are like, you know, get the beast, the, the beast, unleash the beast. Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not unleashing the beast. I hope not. It's, it's escaping the beast, escaping. politics, allegiance, and kingdom. Okay, perfect. So, so, and I mean, like you say, you know, they kind of really geared at this idea of culture uh, and allegiance, you know, um, which, which I think you explain very well, the allegiance piece, especially when it comes to repentance. Um, and, and so, I, I, you know, we'll start with those. And then I do want to talk a little bit about the politics issue, especially with what's happening in the U.S., because it does have some ramifications around the world. And I think, by and large, the whole world is watching uh, what will happen uh, Tuesday, I believe. Next week, Tuesday, is, is the 3rd of November here. So, um, but, but help me understand kind of contextually, where, where did, where did the, the writing for you begin um, about, man, I, I'm seeing cultural differences. Of course, you're married to, you're a Caucasian male, for those who don't know, uh, married yeah. to an African-American woman. Um, but, but where does that kind of the writing begin for you? Uh, and then, you know, kind of, if you can give us a brief overview of what your idea is around your writings on this topic. 
Yeah, so it, it, it really the the genesis of that it goes back to um, being in seminary when I wanted to enter into the ministry, mm-hmm. and you know having uh, a lot of courses and a, a direction of study in cross cultural uh, missions, okay. and so read a lot of books about you know, but they were all from the bent of when you go to other countries, you got to deal with other cultures. And here's how you do it. And as I was reading those books, I I realized, you know, long story short, I realized like, this is my marriage right here. This is helping me understand some of our conflicts and differences that uh, I just, you know, just thought it is what it is. And, you know, uh, I would think, well, my wife's rude or my wife's wife's this or that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'm learning like, no, she's not rude. Actually, in her cultural context, that's super respectful. It only seems rude to me because of my cultural context. Yeah. So then over the years, I started to study and look at that more and more. And I I realized like, man, there is not much um, in in all the Christian books and all that. There really was not much analyzing um, culture from the aspect of being in the same country and in the same church, different cultures of people and analyzing that. So I don't know, it just, it just became clear to me um, both through the study, but then from my own life and experiences and, and then traveling a lot, you know, and being in places and and recognizing, um, you know, whether it's uh, vernacular differences or custom differences or, you know, uh, assumption differences, all, all of those things, um, you know, what's, what's respectful in one culture is kind of considered off or rude in another. And, Mm. um, but then, you know, in 2015, 16, something like that, um, we, we looked in, I I guess 15, maybe even 14, I don't know, but I, I looked and said, man, I just see a lot of attitudes about race and assumptions being made and um, uh, amongst disciples that uh, don't feel biblical to me, don't feel like this is where the Bible's teaching. And, and again, I guess I had a perspective on that because of my history background and kind of passion in that area. Mm-hmm. So I brought that together, and, and that was crossing the line. Uh, first, we did a teaching series in our church, and that became so popular in demand that, you know, I was actually asked to write a book on the topic, and so I, I did. Um, a little bit reluctantly, but I, you know, I, I did. At first, I was like, I, I don't know if I want to, you know, I just want to teach the Bible. I don't know if I want to go down this road of specific application, although I feel like it's biblical, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm not sure if I, I want to do that. And then especially being, you know, to be frank, being a white guy, I'm like, I, you know, I'm not trying to be the white savior and have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was really encouraged by African-American friends of mine. that were like, no, we, you gotta be the guy to do this. I think God has put you in a perfect spot. And so, mm-hmm. Um, so I did and, and really try to analyze like, man, what does the Bible say about race and how should we approach it? And what does that mean for us? And, and a little bit of the cultural element in there. And so then we started doing a lot of workshops, at, you know, after the book came out. And I think the response from a lot of churches was like, man, this is super great. 
and it tells us what we need to do. But now we're wondering how do we include all these other cultures and how do we become inclusive in all things to all people? So that really led to the next two books, which, which came out simultaneously, which is yeah. the, the crown that will last, which is the uh, individual devotional book. And then the all things to all people, which is a little bit of a deeper dive into how do churches bring together these different cultures and, and, you know, cause God's given us the mission to gather the nations, yeah. but he's left yeah. the work, the task of being all things to all people up to us of being culturally flexible and humble and learning other people's cultures and not having a default culture. And that's one of the things that the church decided in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem council, when they said, okay, Jews, we're going to ask you to do this. And Gentiles were going to ask you to make this concession as an essence. They were saying there's not going to be a default culture in Christianity. It's not just going to be a Jewish religion, wherever it goes, it's going to adapt to all types of people and places. And it's funny because some people will get resistant to that and say, well, it's cultural relativism or something. Well, no, it's not. We still examine the aspects of culture that don't fit into the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. But it's it's being realistic. It's being respectful that I have my culture, you have yours. And one is not, you know, the expressions, the assumption is one is not inherently more uh, spiritual or Christian mm-hmm. uh, than the other in, in a lot of respects. Now, again, we examine each culture and we each have things that, you know, we don't conform to the pattern of the world and we need to drop. Mm-hmm. But it's funny how people will understand it almost inherently when it comes to language. You know, we all agree, hey, it's important to have the word of God available in your language. It's okay for, you know, if somebody grew up Zulu to to pray in Zulu. That's That's great. Or to sing uh, Zulu songs to God. That that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and you know, for those who speak Afrikaans or English, like let's adapt. And then if we're going to worship together, we got to figure that out. Let's share each other's languages. Let's sing. You know, we'll sing Amazing Grace, and then we'll sing Avulekile Amasango, and mm-hmm. um, you know, we'll sing. Um, you know. Uh, I can't think of an Af- Afrikaans title for a song, but you, you know, you know and, and sing and sing and sing them song, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you know the song I'm talking about? I do, I do. I all do. right, all right, good. I got that. I got it close enough that you knew. So that's, <laughs> you know, but you you share all that because you you know you honor each other's language. Mm-hmm. I think we do the same thing in culture. We honor each other's culture. Yeah. They're they're vehicles. To praising God. You know, you don't need to speak English to be a Christian. You don't need mm-hmm. to speak Hebrew or Greek to be a Christian. And That's in the true. same way, you don't need to embrace a, a white Western culture to be a Christian, or you don't need to embrace an Afrikaans culture or a Jewish culture or, you know, whatever it is, it's adaptable. But if we're going to be diverse, then we need to truly be that. And it's so easy for churches to slip in and have a dominant culture. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is having a dominant culture, it's, that's not evil in and of itself, but it works against the gathering of the nations. It works against the mission that we're given. And so being all things to all people, being culturally humble and adaptable and inclusive uh, works towards 
what we're what we're trying to do. And then and then the final book, Escaping the Beast, is really uh, a similar feeling that just seeing a lot of Christians engage in the political realm and seeing how intertwined race and culture and politics are, mm -hmm. uh, just seeing a lot of people go down the road of like, man, I don't know that we're thinking in a kingdom way here. And yeah. so I certainly don't want to give the impression or have the feeling that I um, alone understand all these things and have all the answers. But I was like, you know, we've got to have the conversation. And, mm -hmm. and in our family of churches, um, there was really not a conversation going on about race, culture, or politics. Yeah. And so, well, let's at least start the conversation. And I think that's happened. And I, I think it was, um, you know, timely in some respects, because I can't imagine if, you know, the way this year has been, if we had not started to talk about these topics and teach yeah. them biblically and we just ran up into 2020 um you know with with no background to it like man it would have been rough i, yeah. I believe yeah um, still is rough but would have been much rougher yeah no it's uh, yeah it's it's interesting because i do think they all kind of lead and flow into one another uh these 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 four books and and, and we could talk, I'm probably sure we could talk for a number of hours, uh, you know, about, about these different themes. But I want to kind of uh, tackle it slightly differently. We've spoken about it on the podcast, people can listen to previous episodes. We've spoken about it from a South African context and, and some of what young people are grappling with when it comes to race and, and culture. And, and obviously seeing things like, uh, you know, George Floyd's death uh, sweep across the world, really, again, this globalization that's happening. But I, I want to kind of bring it home to the individual. If you consider whether, you know, a black person trying to be Christian and a white person trying to be Christian and, and colored or Indian, or, uh, you know, obviously these words might mean different things in different parts of the world. But when you, when you consider what a Christian should be like when it comes to, to culture, and I know you underline this in, in, in these books, but what do you think are some key things that, as, especially as young people, because we're going to grow up in a, in a very diverse world, uh, probably more than like your, you know, experience growing up. Uh, how do you say, you know, we tackle uh, issues of race and culture on the individual level? Yeah. So, uh, first of all, I'll say just in, in case um, your listeners haven't connected the dots, um, George Floyd, uh, the George Floyd murder took place here where I live, just mm -hmm. a few miles from where we live uh, in the Twin Cities in, in Minneapolis. And so um, we were really ground zero uh, for, you know, all of that. We were, as a church, we were on that site, you know, a couple days after it happened and helping to clean up after the riots and try to put things back together and, um, you know, just pray for our community and lament and all those things. And, um, you know, it, it, it is challenging and, and there's always a constant pressure to embrace the patterns of the world and the way of thinking of the world. And I, I think, and hopefully I'm not going back too far here for what you had in mind with that answer. But I think, you know, at, at, so if you look in the Bible, in Revelation 5, it talks about, you know, 
the people of God being gathered together, Revelation 5, 9, Revelation 7, 9. And you have this description of people of every um, tribe, every language. It says every people, but that the Greek word is ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnicity from, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and every nation. And so it's all these beautiful differences are our physical characteristics, our culture, our language, our nationalities, our, you know, all of that. God gave us these differences and, and, you know, those mark us out and it causes this beautiful diversity and we should recognize that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a problem when we start to say, oh no, I'm colorblind. I don't recognize any of that. Well, then you're, you're denying um, the beautiful diversity that God made us and he wants um, that to be known and, and recognized because in Ephesians 3, as Paul's talking about this gathering of the nations into one family, he says in Ephesians 3, this is the mystery of Christ that's being revealed, mm-hmm. and it is the wisdom of God on display through the church. And so, you know, we shouldn't be denying that we're diverse, mm-hmm. um, but really celebrating it. Look, God is bringing together all the different ethnic groups and nations and languages and tribes in a way that the world's never been able to do and can't because it doesn't have the wisdom to do it, but God does. So those are all God given differences when you add it all up and then we bring it together and we learn how to be all things to all people. But at various times throughout human history, humans have come up with other ways of categorizing and separating and, you know, at various times it's, oh, maybe it's climate and it's usually based in power and it's based in, then we're going to declare that some groups of people are inferior and some are superior. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, around the time of Aristotle, Aristotle it was based in climate that continued, you know, throughout uh, Rome, it was climate and culture and that, you know, you were superior if you were from a moderate climate and culture and that kind of thing and the Roman culture and all that. But, you know, somewhere around the middle of the last millennium, uh, and I won't go all into it, but I'll simply say this lie developed mm-hmm. that was based on that there's fixed biological differences between us as people groups based solely on one phenotype, one physical characteristic, and that is skin color. Mm-hmm. And that then... And, you know, for hundreds of years, it was put forth the idea that those of some skin colors, especially lighter tones, um, are superior and those of darker skin tones are inferior. Well, to to boil it down in a nutshell, that is a human constructed lie. The idea that there's a difference between that there's a category called race that separates us out by skin color is scientific fantasy and science now realizes and recognizes that it's a human construct it's a social construct but more importantly it's a lie from satan and this idea of white superiority then does a great deal of damage around the world both physical national colonialism all of that but in the minds of all of us it advantages some, it advantages uh, historically people with my color of skin, but it damages us mentally because we buy into this lie that some are superior and some are inferior. And so that continues to today. 
-hmm. Now, I think the world is really waking up to that um, and realizing the depth of that problem. And so in that, I think we can, um, you know, learn some things from the world and partner with the world and say, yeah, let's, let's look at some of the history and some of the analysis of the problems and let's hear people out and stand with the vulnerable and the powerless and recognize that biblically there's an idea that, you know, those in power and privilege are blind to their own power and privilege. And we need people um, that are powerless and unprivileged to, Tell us what's really going on because we won't we won't see it. Mm -hmm. You know, like somebody who, you know, if I walk up to a large flight of steps, I see no problem. I walk up it. But somebody who comes up in a wheelchair sees a big obstacle. They see the problem like, hey, there's got to be a ramp here. So, I, you know, so we need to hear the voice of the powerless and the vulnerable. Um, and I think then there's a realization, though, that the world does not have the solutions to this. They're, they'll put forth solutions, but as someone who believes in the power of Jesus and the kingdom of God, I don't believe that the world has the solutions. They can see the problems, and, and I can agree with that. Um, but we've really got to look to the kingdom, to what's laid out in the Bible, and I think there's so much in there. Because the main conflict of the early church was this challenge of bringing the ethnic groups together, ethnic groups that didn't like each other, Jew and Gentile, and had a history of uh, abuse and violence and terrorism against each other, you know, and all these things. And they had to figure out how to become families. So the, the answers are there in Scripture if we look to them and mine them and live them out, the principles out. In our in our own time, uh, we can come together. So I think it's it's being realistic about that lie and how it continues to impact today. Um, and that's not to demonize or shame any one person. We all fell for that lie, yeah. and so we all, as followers of Jesus, have to work together to say, "Man, we've got to we've got to sniff this lie out." It, has it snuck in some ways? The the impact of it has it snuck into our church? Are we examining that? And, you know, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 26, uh, you know, we've got to see the inequities and treat with special honor those who are powerless and vulnerable out in the world and those who are presentable out in the world. They need no special treatment. That's not favoritism. That's making sure that the lies and divisions of the world don't come into the church and impact us in the way that they have the world. And I think there's no question that we've let that happen at times, that we haven't examined these inequities, that we've been... Uh, dismissive or defensive or blind to them, but as followers of the truth, Jesus said very clearly, if you hold to my teachings, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Mm -hmm. So we have to hold to Jesus' teachings, know the truth, examine it, be set free, and then go after the lies. Go after and, and change the world starting with the church because we have the solutions in the kingdom that the world doesn't have access to. Sorry, just two seconds. Cool. Yeah, that, I mean, it, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, sorry about that. Just someone is at the gate. Um, but that makes a huge amount of sense in the sense that, and I think I love how you're saying the, the Bible is full of those stories that of people needing to come together. And like you say, Jew and Gentile, it wasn't pretty, um, you know, and, and we could dive into all of that uh, for a long time. 
Um, but I think the, the idea, and I think this is what I'm, I'm realizing for myself as I journey through this, is, is there is a lot of worldly solutions, but they don't really work. Like there's a lot of options out there saying, hey, we can change this, we can change that but they don't really work. And it's figuring out how to read the Bible with the cultural context understanding and then therefore dive deep into, okay, if this is what, what was happening in this culture and this is how it was applied, uh, how does that then translate into my, my personal culture? Um, and again, we, you know, we could chat, chat for hours on these topics, but yeah. you mentioned it there that you know, this idea of especially race then feeds into politics. It feeds into this, uh, especially now in the USA, you know, this, this feeling of like, we've got to vote a certain way if you're of certain color of skin, uh, just because especially of history, et cetera. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to understand a little bit of the US context because it's crazy how much it's seeping into South African culture as well. Um, and then, you know, being spun on because of our different history to what was, you know, what, what, what was in the U S and the numbers and the, all anyway. But my, my question is this, is when you then look at, at politics, what do you think is such a lure or why do you think politics is such a powerful thing in the lives of both Christians and non-Christians? Because it seems to be, I mean, it's gripping the world. It's gripping everyone. Uh, and why do you think that is the case that people are so drawn to this idea of politics? Yeah, well, I, I think, first of all, politics has become, politics in itself has become uh, our new gods. Sure. And so, you know, we don't so much believe in leaders anymore. We don't hold up leaders as, as gods. We don't believe in statues as representative of the gods. Mm -hmm. um, and so now politics itself wow. is the solution. If, we're, if you're in the right party or you have the right ideology, you can fix the problems of the world. You find your, your comfort, your trust, your security in politics hmm. and so that ramps it up to a whole nother level you know it used to just be hey politics is applied wisdom some different ways of figuring out how to order society yeah. now it's like no no every the stakes are raised because now we're dealing in the realm of the gods of the divine this will fix everything this will bring about utopia or if that group gets in power it'll be the end of the world hmm. uh, they're you know they're evil and so we start to talk in those terms good versus evil my political side is good it's the good gods your side is like the 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 dragon himself it's it's evil and 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 we don't see each other's perspective culture plays into that where you have um especially in the united states you have you know people that trace our roots back to you know europe tend to be of an individualist culture people co who come from almost anywhere else tend to be of a more collectivist culture sure. that that causes us to view what racism is differently how we deal with it differently how we approach politics differently mm -hmm. um you know the the collectivist for example sees group identity and responsibility. If my group did something, then I, I own that. And I'm responsible for it. The individualist is like, that's a cardinal sin. Don't you dare tell me I'm responsible for something that other people did, mm. you know? And, and so that leads us in different roads politically. And, and I could go on in that forever, but, um, you know, so it, 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 it's raised the stakes, this religion of, of politics yeah. And and then you couple it with, 
you know, it's just a perfect storm, right? Because now you have social media. Uh, you know, before you didn't really know what people thought. Now you do. You know everything they think. You know what they believe and what they stand for. And it's easy to demonize. And 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 then we get in these echo chambers where we only want to hear people who agree with us. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and that kind of thing. And and I actually talk about in Escaping the Beast. There's an idea. Uh, that I uh, kind of seize upon um, from a book called um, the, what's it called? The Coddling of the American Mind or something. I'm, I'm losing, uh, I can't remember the name of it right off. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm having one of those moments, Remo, but it's okay. Yeah. But anyways, um, the idea, yeah. The Coddling of the American Mind. I, I had it right. Okay. And so, um, but the idea is that there are things that are fragile and then there are things that are resilient, right? And fragile things are like, you know, a, a vase, a pottery or something. If you drop it, it's going to break. Then there's something like, you know, I'm holding one of those hard, one of these hard plastic water bottles. Uh, it's almost impossible to break. You can drive over these things. They're not going to break. That's resilient. But they bring out the idea that human beings aren't fragile or resilient. We're actually what they call anti-fragile. And anti-fragile is like an example would be a muscle. You have to stress it in order for it to grow and reach its full potential. Yes. And yes. so uh, human beings are not the sense of, hey, we're resilient. We can, you know, just make it through anything or fragile, which we tend to approach things like we're fragile. Oh, I need safe spaces. I don't want to be confronted with other ideas. I don't, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And we're actually anti-fragile to reach our potential. Um, wow. We need to be stressed and, and pushed and challenged. And so I, I think if we could embrace that uh, along with, you know, and, and a big one here, and I'll finish with this. Because again, I, I wrote a whole book on this, so there's a lot more that could be said. Yeah, sure. But I think a, a big one is, you know, a lot of the solutions, political solutions of the world, uh, and the big things. I'm not talking about small, little local elections, but when we're talking politics with a capital P and big, you know, who's leading the direction of the nation and how are we going to solve all these major problems in the world? Mm -hmm. Um politics tend to really buy into the idea of power and and sure. to at risk of oversimplifying what often happens and what i see in the world a lot right now is the idea of there's oppressor and oppressed the oppressor has power the oppressed don't and so the idea is to give the power from the oppressor to the oppressed but what that doesn't recognize is that's simply going to transfer power um, you know, and, and move it around. And so now the power is taken from the oppressor, given to the oppressed, but now the oppressed become the new oppressor and the old oppressor becomes the new oppressed. And the cycle continues. Whereas Jesus really offered a different way because politics is really a lot of just arguing over how we're going to transfer power and to what degree we should and who should have it. Jesus said, the Gentiles lord power over one another, not so with you. I'm going to show you a different way. Pick up your cross. Pick up your towel. 
We're going to serve. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to share power. We're going to include others. We're going to blow up power, the idea of power as a way to run the world from the inside. And that's really one of the main things that the kingdom is supposed to be, mm -hmm. is a demonstration of the world of here's how to live without power over one another. That, that's why the kingdom can't be compelled. The minute you start to try to legislate morality of the kingdom or force people to become Christians or, you know, that sort of thing, then it's not the kingdom anymore because yeah. the kingdom is the demonstration of life without power over others. It's power under it's serving. And sure. so that's a huge difference in the kingdom of God when it comes to the realm of politics is imagine what it would look like to say, we're going to demonstrate how to tackle the problems of the world without using power as a weapon. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, we fight, but not with the weapons of the yeah. world. We use the weapons of the kingdom. Sure. So, okay. So I, I feel like there's so much more that I would want to cover, but I want to honor your time. And uh, I'm, I'm running into another appointment here. So I'm going to do something I don't often do, but can I, can I secure you for a second conversation? It doesn't have to be in the next day or two. But can, can I get you publicly saying you will do another episode of the podcast where we can dive a little bit deeper into the stuff? I, I, like how, I like how you worded that. Can I get you to publicly say it? Can I get you <laughs> on the hook so that you can't back out? Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, of course. Let's, uh, we'll, we'll work it out in the future. Yeah, yeah. All right, perfect. Because I think where you ended is perfect. I, I usually ask, the, the last question I usually ask people is, hey, what would you want to tell people to help them thrive in life and, and in their faith? But I think you, you, you nailed it in the sense that the, the, what, the thing I want people to walk away with is the kingdom's way of advancing is completely different to that of the world. And whether that is in culture, whether that's in race, whether that, whatever the situation is, especially now with, with politics, race, and culture, I think those three things are huge right now, uh, regardless of where people are listening to this from. I think it's this idea that the kingdom is radically different and the king of that kingdom, Jesus, who calls us to that is, was radically different and so we've got to consider man how do i make sure that my life is this radical different thing so that it can be as you you know as you so eloquently put the option that people can actually take that doesn't need to use power as a weapon so um michael thank you so much i am you know very very grateful for this conversation one for your journey uh, of faith and, and how you grew you know your own faith and then into the biblical scholar that you are now um, but to, to, to this point where we're talking about these four incredible books, um, I'll make sure to write them in the show notes and, and people to check them out. And I'll just say, you know, you've got a podcast as well called All Things to All, all Men, um, All Things to All People podcast, excuse me, with Michael Burns that I, I'm a religious li listener to whenever there's a new episode, it's in my ears, whether it's on a run or just hang out here in the house. So uh, thank you so much for all that you do for, for uh, you know, the churches out in the U.S., but also I know for sure uh, here in Southern Africa. And, and thank you again for this interview. It's, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to uh, being on with you again. Wow. Right. I mean, what an incredible conversation. I know it was uh, one that I really enjoyed. I found it very insightful, um, and that's why I hooked him for <laughs> another episode, I think, where we can dive even deeper into the conversation about uh, race, culture, and politics. It will be quite interesting because it will be after the U.S. election as well, so 
it will be good to kind of hear how he's processing all of that and thinking through that. Um, but I hope you learn some things, you know, uh, whether it's just how to deepen your own personal Bible study and go a little bit further, uh, or it's around this idea of being culturally humble and learning how to deal with the different cultures around us, because the world is now more one than it's ever been. You know, we uh, move because we heard something happen in China. We're moved because we hear something happening in Nigeria or something happening in the U.S. Uh, all across the globe, we are now connected. And I think as we connect deeper and deeper, more and more, uh, as human beings, we need to learn how to relate to one another with our different cultures, our different races, our different uh, ethnic backgrounds. And uh, I think Michael Burns just does such a great job in being able to really um, talk through those things. And so... Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please go check him out uh, at the All Things to All People podcast. Uh, it's a great podcast. I listen every week. Uh, there's also um, IPI books, or you can check out Michael Burns' uh, teaching ministry on Facebook. Uh, so there's a lot of places where you can reach him and be able to engage even more with his content. Uh, but as for today, I hope this conversation helps you to thrive in your life as well as in your faith. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more thought-provoking conversations, subscribe to the Rima Klale Life and Faith Podcast. Please like, review, and share so that we can continue to help others thrive in their life as well as in their faith.